Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Faith in $5. $5, six countries, four months, and a one-way ticket to southern Russia. This is a book about faith, obedience, and miracles by Jonathan Nowlin. I hope you enjoy this reading of Faith in $5. Chapter 5. Back in the USSR. When we landed in Krasnodar, we began to realize how solitary we really were. Our immediate quest upon arrival was to find the house where we were supposed to stay. Russia was a country struggling to stand on its feet after decades of decline during the Soviet era. Everything was difficult. It was often difficult for the population to even obtain the basic needs of survival. Transportation was unreliable and severely overcrowded. Food was almost unobtainable and water had to be boiled before drinking. Even if you had money, there was no restaurants, nor any bottled water to purchase. Stores carried very little besides canned sardines, salty cheese, and sausages. No one spoke English in those days in the outlying parts of Russia. We had obtained a handwritten set of instructions outlining bus numbers and a number of stops to expect on each connection. Without the ability to ask directions effectively in Russian, It was going to take a miracle for us to find our house. Finally, we believed we had identified the correct stop and got off the overloaded bus. Most buses were severely overcrowded, to the point of providing absurd comic relief for us during even the hardest days of survival in post-Soviet Russian society. The average bus was designed with a capacity of about 60 or 70 people to sit and stand. The usual load, however, was often in excess of 300 people. The buses would actually drag their rear bumpers on the pavement due to the excess weight. Under these circumstances, public transportation was a difficult undertaking, even if you knew where you were going. We made it to what we believed was our neighborhood and headed down a shattered road with trash fires burning on all sides. We showed our address to an old lady who was walking a tiny lap dog, and she was able to point us in the general direction. The house in which we were to stay for the next two months was a small pre-World War II home constructed with typical corrugated cement roof panels. As soon as we arrived at the house, we closed ourselves in and felt that we should pray to remain invisible in both the natural and spiritual realms. Russia was dangerous in those days, especially for Westerners and for Americans in particular. Most of the society was either lawless or controlled by local mafia factions and strongmen. There were very few options for the people to earn a living in those days. Almost all of the men were involved to some degree in the black market or worse. There was very little hope of any protection from the local police, who mainly kept their uniform in position just to make money from giving out bogus traffic tickets that were payable in cash on the spot. 
What is certain is that the Russian government never saw much of the money from those alleged violations. From the time we arrived, we felt the fear on the streets. You never knew who you could trust or who would kill you just for the fun of it. It could be corrupt police, drunken military, or local mafia thugs who would abuse you or worse. We quickly learned a new dimension to the scripture that we were to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves. One situation that may give a sense of how desperate the times were, especially for young men, was our friend Sergei's situation. Sergei was just 17 years old and had become a dedicated Christian at about 15 years of age. I became friends with Sergei after meeting him regularly at church on Sundays. One day when we were sitting in church together, he began to weep uncontrollably. I proceeded to try to find out what was causing his grief and all he could say was, I have big problems with the mafia in my family. Later he explained to me why he couldn't attend our discipleship camp in the summer. He said that his father was a big-time mafia boss. Sergei was compelled under duress to act as one of his father's enforcers and to translate for black market deals between the Ukrainian mafia and other European mafia factions. Each year, they spent much of the summer months in southern European cities arranging deals. Sergei felt desperately trapped. If he refused to assist his family, they would either kill him or turn him into the police, along with evidence of his crimes. I prayed with Sergei many times during our two months together, but after he departed for his trip to southern Europe, we never heard from him again. My heart was constantly breaking for the people all around us who we had learned to love and care for. Fortunately, our small house was tucked away amid overgrown trees and bushes that kept it virtually invisible from the front. This was a great advantage, as no one could observe us when we came in and went out. Without local support, we were in for tough times regarding even our basic survival, much less our ability to accomplish any ministry tasks. We had two primary objectives. Beyond just finding food to eat each day, we had to find a way to connect with and recruit brand new local churches to partner with us to send their students to our discipleship youth camp and we had to make our way to the Black Sea region to find a secure camp location. Most of our first month was filled with diligent language learning efforts. Although my Russian language skills were coming along fairly well, that didn't keep us from making epic language errors that brought regular amusement and outright fits of laughter from the people in the market where we frequently shopped. One of the most memorable humiliations at the market happened when I attempted to order two kilos of bread flour, but due to a slight misuse of intonation, I accidentally ordered two kilos of pain and torture instead. The lady standing behind the counter in the market progressed from stunned and confused looks on their faces to literally rolling on the ground behind the counter, howling with laughter, and pointing at us while trying to catch their breath. We had no idea what we had done to bring on this explosion of laughter. This episode went on for at least 15 minutes, to the point that we had given up on buying flour and moved on to other shopping attempts. When we got home later that night, we used a Russian-English dictionary to discover our linguistic mistake. When we understood what we had said, we laughed for at least three days. Needless to say, we were famous at the market from then on. When we arrived to do our shopping, the ladies behind the flower counters saw us coming, and before we could get to the counter to order, they had already begun to fall on their hands and knees in uncontrollable laughter. We finally concluded we had at least imported some regular humor with which to relieve the dismal environment 
that was open markets in post-Soviet Russia. God truly honored and answered our prayer for invisibility. We felt irrationally safe even though each day was full of necessary risks and unknown situations. By the end of the first month, we had begun to make progress toward our goal of inspiring local churches to support the vision of discipleship youth camps. Commitments were starting to materialize. This is when the devil decided to push back and to push back hard. We were making progress, and apparently we were becoming a threat to the enemy's plans and his strongholds in the area. The attack came in a completely unexpected way. I'd grown up as a spiritually sensitive child, living in environments around the world where spiritual warfare and demonic activity often crossed the lines between the invisible world and the visible world. When the attack came, it proved to be one of the most bizarre and life-changing experiences that had ever happened in my life. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Most Christians in the West are so sheltered by positive and secure church and family environments that they rarely experience full-force demonic attacks, much less those that cross over into the physical and visible world. This is testimony to the victorious and sanctifying work of Christ, who is steadily redeeming and sanctifying our spheres of influence and responsibility in countries that are heavily populated by people who love the Lord. However, Russia, in these early days of post-Soviet freedom, was far from influenced or spiritually subjugated by the blood of Jesus. Evil was largely unchecked, and new Christian churches were just beginning to understand their spiritual authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, we were discovered spiritually, and the shield of invisibility that we had prayed for was compromised. The way our small house was arranged only allowed for one actual bedroom. Mike and I ceded the small back bedroom to Faith, and he and I slept on the living room floor. That night, as I lay on the floor of the living room trying desperately to fall asleep, I could not settle my soul enough to rest. Mike was instantly asleep and fortunately missed out on most of the bizarre events that followed. As I lay trying to will myself to sleep, I began to pray. I distinctly heard the Lord tell me that He was keeping me awake because something was about to happen that I would need to deal with. This didn't settle my soul at all. Suddenly, I began to hear Faith cry out in her sleep from the back bedroom. She began to yell out in a confrontational way, but I could tell she was actually still asleep. As she slurred her words and didn't get sentences out clearly, I began to think that I should start praying for her when, unexpectedly, as I lay on my back staring up at the dark roof of the living room, the ceiling began to move. Slowly, the whole ceiling and the upper part of the living room walls began to spin in a clockwise direction. It was like being inside the base of a slow-moving tornado. As this happened, I could begin to make out shapes and faces in the swirling darkness. I was struck with instant alarm and fear. All I could think to do at first was to not let the enemy see that I was awake and aware of what was going on. Just don't move, keep your eyes mostly closed, and they won't notice you. I kept telling myself. The veil between the spiritual and the natural realm had been pulled back and God was revealing to me that the enemy was descending on us in a brazen attack. I wasn't at all sure what the outcome of this situation would be. 
After my initial fear and alarm, my spirit became suddenly aware that I needed to act. I felt a distinct impression that the only thing that would save us was to call on the name of the Lord. I was not at all sure what to say or how to say it. I knew that the minute I spoke out, I would be noticed, and that the whole supernatural melee that I now found myself in the midst of would immediately focus itself on me. All I could think to do was to say, Holy Spirit, I invite you. I knew from many previous spiritual conflicts and encounters that the power of God and the name of Jesus were more than enough to rescue us from the reckless spiritual attacks by the enemy. All I could think was that somehow the enemy was overplaying his hand in this attack. How could he not know that the servants of God would call on the name of the Lord and be saved? So I began to speak out and invite the Holy Spirit. It produced the most amazing and magnificent result. I only got the words, Holy Spirit, I. The Holy Spirit did not even wait for the whole prayer and invitation, but exploded into that house like a holy hand grenade. A blinding white flash erupted in the living room and blew apart the swirling darkness that was engulfing the ceiling of the room. As a warm glow and a powerful peace filled the room, I heard the very loud sound of frantic, clawed feet trying desperately to get traction on the roof and flee. It was like the sound of a terrified poodle on a hardwood floor that is trying to suddenly sprint for its life but can't get traction. The sound of flailing claws on the roof and the subsequent racing thumps of feet on the roof caused me to almost cheer out loud at the terrified retreat of the enemy and for the greatness of our God. With loud and distinct thumps, evil spirits jumped from the roof and landed in our backyard. Neighbors' dogs began barking frantically, and I could hear the sounds of fleeing demons as the dogs all started barking along the route along which they fled, until they were so far away that I couldn't hear the dogs anymore. We were saved both spiritually and physically by the explosive invasion of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Faith calmed down in her sleep and quit yelling. Complete peace descended on the house, and I easily fell asleep, thinking to myself that all I had to do was invite the presence of the Lord, the precious Holy Spirit, and I would be saved from any weapon that was formed against me. This experience was a life lesson like no other. I realized I had nothing to fear. No agents of the kingdom of darkness could stand in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What a powerful truth. The real joy I experience in retelling this epic story of faith and obedience motivates me to share this account. As I have gone on to serve in various countries in all manner of charitable and Christian efforts around the world, I continue to long for the miraculous. Our lives are short and frail. I don't want to waste time and energy that should be used for the cause of Christ on the things that are just good ideas. There are a million good ideas available for the average Christian. There is no shortage of noble and sacrificial enterprises that can be undertaken through various churches, agencies, and nonprofits. The real question that has to be addressed is, has God asked you to begin this action, or did your own compassion and response to human need motivate you? Freedom, joy, and miracles accompany obedience to Christ. Notice I didn't say ease, worldly wealth, comfort, or happiness. In my experience, the things that need to be done in the kingdom are currently not being done precisely because they are not fun or even emotionally rewarding. 
In obedience to the word of the Lord, you find freedom. Freedom in knowing that this was God's idea. When it is God's idea, you're free from wondering if you made the right decision to get involved. You're free from doubt, free from fear of failure. You can always fall back on the word of the Lord when things get difficult. I can guarantee you that anything you take on that falls into the category of advancing the kingdom of God will encounter significant difficulties. I also say joy is a byproduct of stepping out on the word of the Lord. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we need strength. Joy comes from recognizing and realizing who you are in Christ. If you truly understand your identity as a son or daughter of the King, and that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ, you cannot help but sense your heart jump for joy at this revelation. I believe the joy becomes your strength when you realize that God is going to do something powerful in you and through you as you step out and obey. In my own life, I have often felt a complete and deeply rooted joy flow out of me when facing the worst situations. Often I have found myself laughing out loud when in the middle of a difficult or dangerous situation that has arisen out of my choice to obey. I have begun to realize that this reaction is my spirit rising up in joy to strengthen my flesh and soul. It wasn't that the situation was humorous, but that my spirit saw my circumstances in clear perspective next to the person of Christ. To my spirit, every adverse circumstance seems laughable in comparison to the power of God. The role of the miraculous that rises up to show the power and favor of God when you obey cannot be emphasized enough. There are different levels of obedience. I believe that they produce different types of outcomes in a person's life. It's easy to obey when all the ducks are in a row. You have a 10-year strategic plan and all the resources you need are lined up for a crack team of professional athletes. Anyone can choose to obey in those circumstances and rightfully should obey. The challenge of this storyline is that it rarely presents itself in real life. And even when your options do look like best-case scenarios mentioned previously, this will present a few challenges of its own. I would question the appearance of a best-case scenario for the following reasons. Why is there no tangible resistance from the enemy? Any kingdom undertaking that is of God will by definition be against the enemy, and he and his forces will push back to try to hold on to what they think is their terrain. Is this undertaking something that I could do in my own strength? If God left the project altogether, how would I notice? We have to be okay with things in life requiring God-sized intervention to succeed. Am I allowing room for any of the miracles that God can do and wants to do on our behalf? I read a quote from Pastor Mark Batterson who once said, Everybody wants a miracle. We just don't want to be in a situation where we need one. I could not agree more. The most memorable parts of my many ventures in the kingdom have been those aspects in which God has turned the impossible into the possible through acts of power and wisdom that could only come from Him. I honestly don't remember much of what has gone well by human standards in the past. What I remember, and what I believe heaven remembers, are the times in which I obeyed, and the Lord rescued and saved through His mighty hand. He rescued and proved himself when I had no power or ability to accomplish what I was being asked to do. In these types of situations, we give God the pen and paper and he writes the script. Often to our discomfort, he writes the script as we go along, 
testing our faith and our confidence in His character. If we allow ourselves to be put into these kinds of obedience moments in which things don't make sense, the ducks are not in a row, and even the wisdom of friends and family may be against our choice to obey. If we still hold on to the word of the Lord, we begin to see miracles. I don't know about you, but that's all I want to see at this point in my life. God is not impressed with our great knowledge, experience, wisdom, or talents. God is impressed with the person who obeys and holds nothing back, with the one who goes all in. He is impressed not with conditional obedience, but with unconditional obedience, with the one who hears and obeys. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.